Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Red Pill Your Healthcast. My name is Dr. Charlie Fagenholtz, and I'm here with Lauren Johnson, FNP. And before we get started on our topic tonight, we want to revisit our last podcast, where you all know that we had our first guest that came with very mixed reviews. And uh, we wanted to kind of shed some light on that. So the first thing I want to say is a fan uh, emailed in something and she um, she worked in the insurance industry and she thought it would benefit our listeners. So I'm going to read that first. She said, I'm such a huge fan. You've helped transform the life and health trajectory of my family. I'm writing in regards to your most recent podcast episode with Nimesh Patel. A great conversation and always love hearing respectful discussion on opposing perspectives. Now, that's something that I totally agree with, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, it's what makes the world go round. I do want to ask if you can offer clarifying info for your listeners. I've worked in the space of health insurance, specifically individual coverage since the ACA was introduced and implemented in 2013. Nimesh had some misstatements on health insurance being tied to employment. True, however, every single state offers individual coverage, including 41 states which offer expanded Medicaid coverage, which is not linked to employment status at all. The ACA, CMS, and every state's Department of Insurance have requirements for every single carrier to offer affordable coverage. There is really no reason since 2013 as to why someone should not have insurance other than simply not wanting it. There is so much more that can be discussed, but this is just a huge issue in the market and simply false. Also, for the record, which I, I agree with what she's about to say, uh, I believe an open market and opening state lines to increase competition would truly make it even more affordable and force carriers to be more competitive in the offerings. But right now, insurers are so highly regulated that they are unable to create competitive products. Hope this tip of the iceberg helps provide some insight. Thank you for your time, knowledge, and expertise on everything you provide us. I thought that was really well written. Yeah, uh, um, and I and I agree. Um, as a provider who was... I was a provider when, when, when was the ACA? It was like, I was 2013. So I became a nurse practitioner in 2014. Um, and I, I would agree that it, the, I saw an expanded coverage, people who newly got insurance and hadn't had it in years and they were taking advantage of it. And that was good. Um, but it was a lot of state, um, and government programs. And they had a hard time getting in with any providers. Um, so I do think there was that. But I do think that there was, you had insurance. Like there, if you didn't want insurance, then you didn't get it. Um, but that was pretty much the, like what she's saying is if you don't have insurance, it's because you don't want it. Um, I do think there is a, a, a set of the population that, makes too much money for a government program, but makes mm -hmm. not enough money for insurance to make sense because the premiums were so high. And that is where across state lines and letting the free market run really would be a beautiful thing to see if it actually works, because I do think we would see lower premiums and it actually do, you know, a much better job. Um, but at the same time, we could also argue the, the point of having, private health insurance in general, um, because <laughs> yeah. you're paying so much money. I do think having some type of coverage is important because you never know if a car accident will happen, some type of emergency. And so like a health share or something like that, we've talked about that in a previous podcast episode, but I, it, at the same time, you just can't say that the government running it will, will fix it all. Cause as we can see with, with the COVID response, the government running it was not the best thing. And that's kind of the point that I brought up. Like 
I tried to to ask the questions, would you trust that same system to run the health of this country? Obviously, anybody in their right mind would, no one would ever say yes to that question. And so um, everyone who's listening knows that we're a very unique podcast, right? Lauren and I talk about things that people want to hear about, that people vote on hearing about, that most podcasts will not talk about because of fear of cancel culture and all that type of stuff. And so we wanted our first guest to be unique and, and uh, it kind of presented itself as this stand-up comedian. Um, and it would be very easy for us to have thrown him in the lines then, especially on vaccines, uh, especially uh, on us talking about having to pay for people who don't care about themselves health insurance, which we kind of talked about. And I kind of bit my tongue uh, with his response, but we also want to keep things very cordial. We don't want to attack people. That is That gets us nowhere. The conversation didn't really get anywhere, but an hour to speak about that is really not enough time for something that could take up days to really go over everything, right? So um, we thought we just wanted to, you know, kind of um, give our thoughts on it. Like I said, the, the reviews were pretty mixed, uh, but I think everyone agrees that it's nice to have a open conversation that needs to happen. Uh, and Lauren, you and I were talking about that, that these types of conversations have to happen or else nothing truly could change. Right. I mean, I just don't think we can expect the people that are making the policy Congress to be able to have these conversations if we can't have these conversations. Right. And so even having a place to have these conversations is important, even if it doesn't go anywhere just the exercise of talking to someone who thinks differently than you is important. It's very important for us to do and to continue to do. And so I'm not saying that we're going to continue to do that on this podcast, but I am saying it is important for us to have those conversations and for you to do that at home too, because like, where are we going to be if no one is talking about these issues with different opinions? Exactly. And the last thing we'll say before we get into tonight's episode um, is really he you know, he was attracted to the Red Pill Your Health cast name without really knowing anything about us. Um, and so, yes, as our listeners are listening, he did need to be red pilled on many things he was saying. Uh, but again, that's not our energy. We tried to make it as productive as possible. Um, and you you live and you learn. We tried something different. And now we're going to go back to our usual programming of Lauren and I talking about uh, the topics that you guys want to hear about. So uh, tonight, we have medical testing and different diagnostic testing. Now, we all know that there's a difference between functional testing and pathological testing. So this is not going to be an episode about, you know, the right lab values and all that type of stuff. This is going to be more about the mammograms, the biopsies, the colonoscopies, the pap smears and things like that. And, and I'm excited because one, Lauren really comes from this world. And so she has a lot of good uh, points for two and or for and against. Um, and so let's start out with that, Lauren. Which one do you want to tackle first? Let's talk about the one that I think no matter what, we both can say this one is just not needed. Um, mammograms, and mammograms, mammograms, mammograms. I mean, this <laughs> there are such better ways to look for breast cancer than compressing a woman's breast and damaging and then shooting them full of ionizing radiation, which is a known carcinogen. It does not make sense. Like mm -hmm. what, that, just that level of radiation on that very sensitive tissue and compressing it 
it just, it, I, I would love to meet the person who came up with this idea of compressing a woman's breast. Probably um, the same person who did Planned Parenthood. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that. Actually, we had before in a previous episode about birth control. Um, right. <laughs> okay. So after, so there's one, um, study about the accuracy of mammograms. The funny thing is this comes from Susan G. Komen, a breast cancer research, which we all know that this, you know, breast cancer research, they say they're, they're, they're spending all this money to find a cure, but the Komen Foundation doesn't necessarily give all their money to the right places, um, or find the right cures. Um, and so, this is funny that it's coming from them, but they even say after 10 yearly mammograms, the chance of having at least one false positive result is about 50 to 60%. Jeez. So if you go and have your mammogram starting at age 40, 40 to 50, the chance of you having one false positive is 50 to 60%. And guess what happens when you have a false positive? You get a biopsy. Mm. And guess what happens when you get a biopsy? You increase the risk of a cancer diagnosis automatically. Yep. And, and I've heard from people that when you do biopsies, you, you, you increase the risk of, I don't know if it's spreading, but it's, it makes it more pronounced, so to speak. Is that true? Yes. So I am pulling this information from a very trusted source. Um, and this is, I'm going to link her social media and her website on the show notes. Dr. Keneally is an integrative oncologist. She does have a whole body approach to cancer and she does use things like low dose chemo and other things, but she does a lot of other modalities too. Um, and it's not the only way to integratively attack cancer, but, um, her opinion on biopsies is what is guiding this, but she shared a study at one point, um, a few years ago about the risk of tumor cell seeding through biopsy and aspiration cytology. It's, uh, I'll try to share the link in show notes, but basically it's showing that a biopsy can actually seed cancer, um, and can spread the circulating tumor cells. And it is due to the lack of cohesiveness of a tumor, which we know when you learn about cancer, you know that this, this, it's a, the cellular changes that are happening. There is no cohesiveness. There is no like equal, um, it's equal on both sides. It's, it's not, it's not this, it's like this anaplastic, just all over the place type of thing. And so you, it makes sense that these cells are not cohesive and that they're going to be more likely to spread if you mess with it. Yep. And so if they do a biopsy at her um, clinic in California, if they do a biopsy, they prepare the body. And that is what I would really encourage if you are, if you have had a mammogram and you've had an abnormal and they want you to do a biopsy, I would just look into Dr. Keneally's work and, or, and looking into other modalities of, um, of, of diagnosis, breast cancer diagnosis, because a biopsy can really disturb the body. Yeah. And she's actually the one who told me that she was actually my neighbor in California and we became good friends and had many a conversations like we do on this podcast. Um, and so she wrote a great book. Definitely. I encourage you to read her book and she gives you like different recipes for, for different meals and things like that, which is cancer friendly and all. Uh, she did a great job with that. So shout out to Dr. Keneally. Uh, yes. good, good friend. Yes. And uh, okay. So, so it's important to consider 
just the amount of radiation um, that you will get in a mammogram and then the compression, the damage that can be done to a woman's breasts um, mm-hmm. and whether it's actually effective or not at detecting cancer or whether it shows false positive, which increase risk of more diagnostic testing and more um, damage to the body. So what are better options? Uh, well, right next to me in Franklin is uh, thermography. And I have encouraged all of my patients essentially over the age of 18 to get thermography because it's nice to have a baseline. It's nice to have a baseline so that as you age and however often you want to do it every five, 10 years, whatever, you can always compare it to the original and it's non-invasive. It is very, very safe and it can give you a whole lot of information, not only just about your breast, but about all of your tissues. It, it, It really uh, can show your joints. And if there's any hot spots anywhere in your lymph, your, uh, you know, your underarms, your inguinal area, uh, all that stuff. So I am a big fan of thermography. Yeah. I, I definitely think that is, uh, the route that I would, I would recommend. I think that ultrasound can be helpful. I think for women with high dent or a dense breast tissue, Um, MRI can be helpful. I'm not sure if they, if they want you to use contrast, that would make me a little bit hesitant because contrast is, um, quite toxic to the body. Um, of course it has its place for very severe situations, but for a screening measure, you wouldn't necessarily recommend that. Um, I will say that there is a lot of evidence that if you are known to have a a more dense breast tissue, that a mammogram really isn't recommended. And so even your conventional OBGYN should recognize that and say, okay, we'll be okay with doing an MRI for you. Um, because there is breast, a dense breast tissue. If you do the mammogram, you're going to be more likely to have a false positive and more likely to get a biopsy. And so I really, really cannot stress that enough is just to at least ask that question is, is this necessary? Is there a better option? Can we do thermography? Can we do ultrasound? Can we do an MRI? Um, and those are really good ways of detecting, um, breast cancer. And I would also encourage, and I'm sure Lauren would agree with me is learn how to at least do self exams. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know? Definitely. I feel like people, uh, females, I shouldn't say people cause that could be taken the wrong way. These no, days. don't say people. <laughs> yeah. Um, females, uh, majority probably don't know how to do a proper breast exam to themselves to feel for the, the nuances. And, you know, I, I was at a health fair maybe two weeks ago now, maybe it was last weekend. And, um, uh, Sozo S O Z O thermography, which is the, the room next to me where I practice in Tennessee, they had, um, a, a booth there and they actually had a, I think it was silicone or some type of material, uh, breast that had different types of tumors in it so that you can learn what each one feels like. And so I had messed around with it and it's very subtle, some of them. And so, yeah. you know, to get, to get practice for that, I think should be in every educational program, uh, across the, um, across the country and world really, because even that little thing, that little, um, skill can really go a long way. Yeah, it, it is. I've, I've done them. Um, I learned it in my, as a, as a nurse practitioner and it is hard 
to know, okay, is that a, is that a lymph node? And even me, when I got done nursing, um, my oldest, I had this knot that was there and present for a long time. I couldn't get rid of it. I massaged it, did all the things. I wasn't very holistic then. Uh, it was about seven years ago. And so I ended up, I went to the uh, I went to the OBGYN and they said, well, let's do an ultrasound. And thankfully it wasn't, a, they were, they, they didn't recommend a mammogram. And so we did an ultrasound and it was a lymph node. And so you, you can, you can have that. And so you really want to be able to detect and, and know what that feels like. It, I would say the most similar thing is like a BB, um, is for what it feels like as far as like a, a, an assist or a nodule or, um, or a tumor. Um, but, the biggest thing is knowing your breast. And so your breast, especially different times of your cycle, because that's mm-hmm. going to change. And yeah. so try to do your breast self-exam at the same time of your cycle every month. If set an alarm on your phone or whatever, or even do it at different times of your cycle and just take note of it and just say, oh, this is what I would expect at this time of my cycle. And um, I do it in the, sh- you could do it in the shower. You want to look in the mirror and be able to like look and make sure they're equal um, and or not equal, um, and know exactly what the differences are. Um, most breasts aren't equal. Um, but you want to be able to tell what yours look like and what they, and what is normal for you because every woman is different. Um, but the, you know, breast self-exam taking ownership of that and just saying, you know, I am a woman, I need to be careful about these things. Just like men need to be aware of their testicles and, and monitoring that, um, it is something that you really, we all have to take ownership of our body and, and, and just to be mindful of, cause the rate of breast cancer is not going down. Yeah. The cancer is only going up folks. I don't know if anyone has taken note of that, but, uh, in the next 10 years, I can't even imagine what the statistics will be as soon as we were at 7G, uh, Wi-Fi and, and all that type of stuff. So this is only going to be, you know, time proven tested methods that, uh, everyone should know. I have one more study I want to show, and this is from the New England Journal of Medicine that is from 2012, and it's entitled uh, The Effect of Three Decades of Screening Mammography on Breast Cancer Incidents. And this is one of the last uh, statements on it. it. says, we estimated that in 2008, breast cancer was overdiagnosed in more than 70,000 women. This accounted for 31% of all breast cancers diagnosed. Mm. So- I just cannot stress to you enough just to ask questions and to not play into this, like, because I got it abnormal, I have cancer and that stresses you out. Cause that's just going to further the risk of illness, whether it be breast cancer or another illness, stress and emotional and nervous system regulation is one of the biggest factors that could set the stage for any type of chronic disease, including cancer. And so, um, definitely we'll talk about that at the end of the podcast, but if I can just say like, please, please, please um, ask questions and do not live in that fear until you get those questions answered. And let's go into the next test off of that, which would be pap smears. Yeah. As we were just talking about having false positives and emotional stress and stuff like that. Uh, Lauren, what's your take on pap smears? So this has been an evolving thing. I mean, for one, the process of it, I've, I've done those as well. Um, I had to learn that as that's well. Why, and- that's why this is a great podcast to listen <laughs> to you because you've, you've had experience with all these. I've never had experience with doing pap smears. Yeah. And from what I've heard, and you had begun to told me before we jumped on here, uh, I wouldn't want to do them. No. 
they're not fun. It's not a, it's not a Q-tip going up there. It is literally <laughs> scraping. It like it's like nails on a chalkboard to me. That yeah. just like makes my hair stand up. And it doesn't like it. It's just not a. I mean, it's so odd to me. Like these procedures we're doing on women to test them for cancer. And it's like, doesn't that like aren't we causing more injury to the body? Um, but the you know, a scraping is literally what it is. It's not a swab. Um, and the, I will, you know, we'll go into that after this, but there is a swab that can be done to look for HPV, which is the biggest cause of cervical cancer. And so we, that might be a better solution versus these continual pap smears, but a pap, a pap smear is a scraping and it, it definitely isn't, um, it doesn't feel good as a woman. It doesn't feel good. Um, and so, there are, I think, better options for that. Like I'm, I alluded to with the swab, we really need to consider that you can have an abnormal pap smear if you've had sex recently. If um, that's a that's a pretty big uh, thing to know. Yeah, if you have done a vaginal washing, which I do not recommend, and you shouldn't do because it does affect the pH of um, your body and. and it's not, that's not good. But if you've used tampons, um, you get, that can change, that can cause abnormal cells. If there is uh semen still in um, your body from having sex, um, that can, that can cause abnormal cells, even if it was like from a few days ago. And so that is something that they don't even tell you to not have sex for a few days before, uh, before having a pap smear, but I would almost say to not have sex for like a week. Uh, yeah. Because well, you, you were telling me that it was like a week or two before. Yeah, I mean, they, one one person said four weeks. Um, four four at weeks. Least, at least not allowing um, ejaculation into the body at that point. Um, I don't know if that was that makes a big difference as far as not having abnormal cells. I do know that the presence of semen and having sex and tampons and all those things can cause abnormal cells, and that is going to then cause you to have more testing done, which will then increase the likelihood of further complications. For example, in women who have had a cone biopsy done, they have an increased rate of preterm labor or preterm birth. Like, is that causing further issues? And women who have had colposcopy after colposcopy, which is something that they do for um, unexplained bleeding and um, um, abnormal pap smears, is that going to cause like complications for a woman with, with, with fertility. And so is that worth it? A lot of times young women, so they now recommend every three years for a certain age group. And then they, they kind of expanded out after that. But for young women, a lot of times HPV is cleared on its own. Um, and older women, like in the third, they're in the, age 30 ish age range. Um, if you're in a monogamous relationship, it's like every five years because I know that typically it's going to clear on its own. So I think that there is a better way to do that, to detect cancer, um, and know your risk. So if you've had a lot of high risk sexual behavior, that might be a time where you might want to be a little bit more careful with that. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with everything that you just said. I have nothing else to add because I don't do pap smears. I've never had a pap smear. Men can't have smears. I just think, I just think it's not a good procedure to to bank on preventing 
any cervical cancer. I mean, we basically just, a lot of times with an abnormal pap, they will just wait and see if it goes away. And it's like, I don't know if that's the best thing to do because at that point, if you do have abnormal cells, well, first, is it because you've had sex recently or have had worn a tampon or something like that? But is it also, um, do we need to go on and act on this? Like, is the body not able to clear HPV, which we know there are lots of things you can do to help your body clear HPV. Um, but this, but the pap smear doesn't kill the virus. It doesn't, they're not actually removing, they can't actually do that with the pap smear. They're literally just detecting if there are abnormal cells. So again, this cancer screening is a screening for detection of cancer, not prevention of cancer. Yeah, I, I've had a lot of female patients have abnormal pap smears and have get no explanation. And then, you know, we do our thing. I, we clean out the gut, the standard stuff that we do, and then it's not abnormal anymore. And so now knowing what you were saying, Lauren, about, you know, did they have sex? Is their semen still in them? That never even crossed my mind before. Yeah, yeah. So now it's it, uh, it makes a lot more sense because I, I do see people getting abnormal pap smears and then they're kind of just left in the dark. Yeah. You know, kind of, eh, okay. Well, we'll, we'll scan you again in a year, see where you're at. And, and, you know, the other thing is, how do I want to pull it up? Oh, that women will get the HPV vaccine. Um, I got it when I was in my early twenties because it first came out and I was told. I'm how to sure do it. you did. I'm sure that the old boy uh, was second in line. Yes, that was, no, I really wasn't. I didn't want to do it, but <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where your OBGYN is telling you to do it. I didn't question anything then. Sure. And so I've had my round of three, that thing hurt more than any other vaccine. Um, and no, I haven't had a vaccine in many years and I won't get any more, but at the time I didn't know. And, um, thankfully I didn't have any uh, side effects. Well, that I'm aware of because a lot of women did. Um, and that is something that, that is one of the most reacted to vaccines out there. And we're giving it to nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds. Um, but that vaccine doesn't prevent all the types of cervical cancer that is known to cause, or all the types of HPV that is known to cause cervical cancer. It's like, what did you say? Like 30% of? Yeah. So, um, the first time I ever saw Robert Kennedy Jr. speak, he was talking about the HPV vaccine. This is, we were in California at a seminar and he had this, it was a diagram. It was like a bunch of decks of cards, basically. And he was saying what the, what Western medicine will tell you for the side effects. And when he broke down the statistics, he started showing it in decks of cards and it came out to be like one in 40 uh, females who get the HPV vaccine will go into autoimmunity. And so he, he did that, uh, relative to cervical cancer from the strains of HPV you're being vaccinated for. And it was the strains that you're being vaccinated for was at most one third of cervical cancers. So literally the minority. And that was, that was pretty eye opening for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say like in this case, like to never do it, especially if you have a really um, big history with a high risk sex- sexual behavior. I do think there's a swab to, um, to detect HPV now that they can, that is a less traumatic thing that is probably more effective um, because 
there is one there are a lot of false positives with um with pap smears for annual pap smears three-year and five-year pap smears which is the different like frequencies they recommend there is a false positive rate of 35.1 percent 13.4 percent and then 8.3 percent is at the five-year uh pap smear so if you're doing them every year, there's a 35% chance you're going to have a false positive, which means you're going to get a biopsy or um, a colposcopy or, you know, whatever procedure. Think about what, think about what you just said. We have 35% false positive rate on pap smear, 50 to 60% false positive on mammograms. What in the world are we, these tests are like ancient. Yeah. They're ancient they're, and they're, they're putting our female population in fear. And as we all know, as we'll talk about your emotions that, you know, they control your physiology. They live in your physiology and they control everything about you, essentially. Um, that's just crazy to me that that's absolutely insane that we're giving that much false information to people and scaring them to death, essentially. Um, and we can't come up with a less invasive, more accurate, more sensitive test for breast cancer and cervical cancer. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. I, and I have another study that I will put in the show notes that talks about the fault rate of false positives. And it's something that you can show your uh, OBGYN. It's just something that like, I know you want to have evidence and you want to show like, okay, this is why I don't need this. Um, but it's also a point where if your OBGYN is trying to get you to do something that you don't want to do, just, I mean, you don't need to say anything other than no, um, and just know your risks. I mean, as you were saying, like these, these testing measures are just so outdated Mm -hmm. and there are better things that you can do, uh, that do not carry the same risk for further intervention and further risk of cancer development. Like you're telling me that someone like, like uh, Elon Musk can't come up with something that is a less invasive, more accurate test than these decade-old medical invasive procedures. Like I, I just don't buy it. Yeah. Uh, buy it. Okay. One more about Pap smears. According to this is a quote. Uh, there was a there was a British medical journal paper. Um, and it looked at over almost 350,000 women screened for cervical cancer in the Bristol area from 1976 to 1996, 156 women in every 1000 had abnormal results, but only one in a thousand showed signs of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was 155 women for every thousand that had false positives, um, or had abnormal results, but did not have cancer. And so it's just a lot of false positives and like unnecessary testing and it's scare. And like that scares women that scares men. I mean, it scares men too, but like, it's really, it's a lot of fear and it's just not something that I think is a good thing and a good way to, to conduct medicine. I am with you. All right. Let's go over to the other gender now, Uh, similar to past smears. Let's go to PSA. Yeah. Man, I don't have any studies to honestly. That one just—I've never loved the PSA marker because it's just very non-specific. There's, there's not like a specific number that they say is bad. If it if it jumps over more than one, I think 
then they will say, oh, we need to check it again. Um, And that's when they get concerned. They don't, but then they can also say that it can jump for uh, the BPH, benign prostate hypertrophy. Like it's, it, it, it doesn't, there's just nothing specific about it. Um, That's my biggest issue is there's, there's no specificity to it. So it doesn't tell you if it's estrogen uh, being caused by estrogen or being caused by fungus, which in my experience are the, by far the two most common chemical causes to BPH. It's too much estrogen, too much fungus, which has a blood sugar insulin component to it. And so similar to pap smear, they'll just tell you, you have this number and then just, Oh, we'll just screen you again later. You know, there, there's no action plan. There's like you said, there's no really range that they're really looking for. Um, it's just another test that I'm just like, uh, are we still doing these? Well, and then what do they do when they get the jump? Like, are they, is that, is that the next step, a biopsy, a prostate biopsy, which is sure. an intensely invasive procedure. Yeah. And, and think about just, just this. I remember my grandfather had, uh, I believe he had prostate cancer and he was saying that they wanted to remove uh, his prostate, but then they decided not to because there was a 98% survival rate of prostate cancer. There is, there is. You know, like significantly high. So he was just like, okay, so then I'll, we'll just leave it. You know, like why do this invasive thing if it's such a high success rate at at, uh, at surviving? Like your, you know, your five or 10 year survival was 99%. Um, so there's a lot to take into account, but one type of prostate cancer that is fast growing and is, it can cause, it can be deadly, but, and I think it might be in a certain age group, like a much older age group. No, no, I'm trying to remember, but there is one type. It is very uncommon though. It is mostly any type of prostate cancer diagnosis. It is mostly, oh, you'll live. This you won't. They'll say you won't die from prostate cancer, basically, because Correct. it's just not something that t- that men typically die from. Yeah, and so I guess I don't really know an alternative to it. I just don't know if it's as necessary as we make it out to be. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think that honestly, you st- you do the things that we talk about, which avoiding antibiotics, which will grow like yeast and fungus in the body. Yep. Working on the liver, uh, addressing estrogen dominance, which for men is a big factor in fatty liver disease and in prostate issues. Yep. Um, and so like, it's this, these things that we've discussed, um, on the podcast and on our Instagram profiles that really can go after these things and it makes it a non-issue. Yeah. And, and on top of what we just talked about, the, the estrogen, the fungus, insulin, antibiotic use on steroid use, all of that, uh, dairy that's pasteurized and toxic dairy is a huge influence on BPH and toxic estrogens. Um, obviously it's different with raw dairy, A2 dairy and all the stuff that, uh, a lot of people preach. I know Lauren's a fan. Lauren, yeah, I, I, It's raw A2, raw A2. Raw raw A2. Goat, right. I know raw goat. Some people tolerate really well, no, but um, like, but store-bought milk destroys prostates so inflammatory. Well, it destroys. I mean, it is like, it's just inflammatory to everything. It uh, is. And Versendahl, who was, you know, the biggest influence on my life from a, a medicine standpoint, he always said that your prostate will never swell. Uh, this is, was his thing until your heart is broken. 
And so he would say that a lot of where the prostate issues stem from is emotional first, and then it sets up for all the other stuff. He would say fungus is, is a big part of it as well. But he always said that the prostate swells when the heart's broken. You know, I fully believe that there is, uh, there is, if uh, most cancer diagnoses, I think you can look back and see right before that, maybe in the two or three years leading up to that diagnosis, there was a very stressful time in their life. Um, And I, I hate that because it's, it's sometimes it's things that are not in your control. Um, But ultimately we have to say what is in our control, how we respond to these things. And so say there was this massive like car accident that caused a bunch of issues with one of your family members. Okay. Well, you're going to be doing all these therapies and you're going to be really stressed out financially, time-wise. What can you do to proactively go after your health in that hard season? That's what I'm talking about. Like you, okay. You going outside the hospital in the morning because you're staying there with your family member or whatever, you go outside and you're looking at the morning sunlight, you getting healthy snacks in and not eating the, the junky hospital food, you know, mm-hmm. things that are like things that are in your control. Um, you know, you prayer, meditation, worship, um, whatever it is, um, that you can really go after your thoughts, um, because your thoughts will lead to disease if you are yep. not careful. And so I know it's hard and I, I struggle with this too, guys. Like, it's not like a, Hey, you know, I, I have the, the solution to it all and, and I've, and I do it all perfectly. No, we both, I mean, we, we both have had hard seasons and stressful seasons and you just, you do what you can, but you know that the, you, you can only control the controllables and what you do and what you consume and what you think about is a controllable. Absolutely. Um, um, all right. That brings us to our last, uh, test. Unless yeah. you have something else on PSA. No, colonoscopy. I was going to bring it up. Colonoscopy. Now here's one that's going to be, I think the most interesting, um, Lauren and I were talking a little bit before and we were having some good discussions. So we're like, Hey, let's just save it for, uh, for the end of the podcast. And so I'll give my take on what I've always thought. And now, and then Lauren can give her take. And I think this would be a good, uh, discussion is for me, I always viewed colonoscopies as, uh, invasive, as it can tear the colon lining back in the day, which Lauren corrected me. I would, this is 10 years ago. Uh, I'd heard that whenever you get a colonoscopy, the only time that the doctors will get paid was when there was hemorrhoids or polyps at least. And so everyone would walk away with those diagnoses to get paid from insurance. But Lauren has corrected me and said, that is not true anymore. I don't think, I don't, think that's true because they just they do them too much and they are need to they are neat they are they do them too much for them not to get paid um mm-hmm. and and find the and find benign findings and so i don't i don't think that that's true anymore especially because i mean I, i've seen them the reports done where there was no there was there was hemorrhoids but there was no polyps and i don't really know why they would ever like pay for hemorrhoids, but not pay for a person with a history of bleeding. Um, and so as long as you have an indication, um, if you're young, if you're, if you're within the screening, uh, ages, which now I think is down to 45, then they should pay for it. No problem. Um, mm-hmm. but if you have any type of like bowel changes, bleeding, weight loss, 
uh, anything like that, then they should pay for it. No problem. And the, and your doctor should get paid for it and shouldn't get any type of bill. Um, so they are invasive. They are. Yeah, so, so there's a story that I have where I was practicing in California and I had a patient come in and his bowel was so distended. I mean, like hard as a rock. He hadn't had a bowel movement in a week. And his wife brings him in and I say, okay, I'm going to see you four days in a row and we're going to see what we can make. And he was coming in with sharp stabbing pain. So I test him. I find parasites. I put him on a ton of parasite herbs, comes back the next day. Maybe it was two days later, comes back. He said, okay, the stabbing pain is gone, but now it's a dull ache, but I still haven't had a bowel movement. I'm like, okay, let's start working. We start working and start testing and stuff. Put him on a ton of digestive enzymes and um, proteolytic enzymes and still nothing. Next day, not no change. I'm like, all right, last thing, magnesium. Ton of magnesium, no bowel movement. As I'm testing him, in my head, I hear imaging and call it what you want. There's, you know, intuitiveness. There's sometimes you just get a signal. And so I heard imaging and I told him, I said, here's what I want you to do. I don't want to scare you, but I want you to go to the emergency room and I want you to ask for uh, an MRI or an image of the colon, specifically not a colonoscopy. And if that's all clean, then I want you to go get a, um, some colon hydrotherapy. And so he went to the ER and they listened to him. They did, I believe it was an MRI and there was a tumor blocking his sigmoid colon and uh, just above his rectum. It was a stage four cancer. And if his wife called me and said, I, we think you saved his life because if they would have done one, we found cancer in them right now. Now he went and did his own thing and all that. But two, if they would have done a colonoscopy, they could have ruptured that tumor as well. And so that was my experience. And that's only one person, you know, it's not the, the norm. Uh, But so I've always had a little thing against them being a little too invasive because you don't know what type of tissue you're going to run into. So that's actually, my dad had colon cancer and that is the same thing that happened with my dad. So I was a nurse practitioner and this was uh, eight years ago. Um, and so this, is, this is pre, pre uh, new Lauren. Yeah, this is pre holistic Lauren. Uh, but my dad had uh, some pain in his stomach and he needed to, I was trying to help him have a bowel movement and had all these things and nothing was working. He took a bunch of magnesium, um, the, what's the stuff, the milk and magnesia and it caused severe pain enough where he was like, okay, I guess I do need to go to the ER because it was it before that it wasn't that severe. And he, they did a CT scan and he had a tumor and it was very close to rupturing. And he was up to date on his colonoscopy. He was, he was due for it the next year. Um, and so I don't know what, and it was odd the way, but see what we'll talk about in a little bit about the factors that will 
increase the likelihood of cancer development. I think are factors there too. Um, but I will say that that is what, that is what helped, you know, find it with my dad. And thankfully they, they found it before it ruptured because if it would have ruptured that the likelihood of death with a, an intestine rupture like that is, is pretty high. UK, it's not a pretty thing. And so, um, you know, that it's one of those things where if you are having severe abdominal pain and you don't know why you, I, I always say, get imaging, like just, just, just insist on a CT scan or an MRI. I would prefer MRI because it's not radiation. Uh, yeah. but just, just, just to know if it is severe pain, you, we need to know what we're working with. Unless you're obviously working with a holistic practitioner that's doing testing or something like that. There is a difference between mild pain and severe pain. Um, especially if it's an acute thing. Okay. So colonoscopy is invasive. You are going up there with the scope. You are picking tissue samples. Um, it can be therapeutic, um, in quotation marks, because they say that they remove the polyps, Um, and so that can be therapeutic. It does. There was a new England journal of medicine study that showed that it didn't actually prevent or lower the, the rate of death of cancer death in a large study. This was from last year. It said, while people who underwent the exam were 18% less likely to to develop colon cancer, the overall death rate among screened and unscreened people were the same at about 0.3%. This was from Poland, Norway, Sweden, and Sweden. Um, So it may not prevent death, cancer death, but it does prevent it does detect the cancer. I have a hard, this is where I struggle with this one. Um, yeah. the, the rate of colon cancer in young people in the thirties, um, is just massively increasing. And so if, if there are current symptoms, I struggle with not recommending some type of screening measure because we don't know if there's an active cancer process. Like if you were to do a muscle, like muscle test a patient that had, mm-hmm. say that they had bowel changes, bleeding for, for mm-hmm. two months, um, bowel, uh, bleeding with, with bowel movements, would you be able to test for cancer or would you te- you would find the root cause you would find parasites, right. Or another type of infection. So depends on, this is not across the board for all muscle testers, but there is a hand mode and I, everyone knows that I, a lot of people know I use hand modes that is for abnormal cell activity. And so if you scan that, that will tell you that technically it is some, it could be any type of like physiological swelling, but it is abnormal cells. And so if you get that with the symptom, the clinical picture, and there's a, there's something called a respiratory test that tells you if the problem will respond to conservative care or not, then you refer out. So that's a very good uh, tool to have. Yeah. And it actually came from someone who had cancer themselves and they found it. They found all of that while they were working on themselves. Okay. Well, so, but, that, but that's not, that's not across the board. So that is not, right. I would say 99% of people don't know how to do that. And yeah. so I would say the, the, most common would be you would more so find the parasite, the glyphosate. You would find that because the body, when you muscle test, unless you ask it specific questions, will always show root causes, not diagnoses. Right, right. 
Right. So I think it just depends on the situation. And that's, again, it goes back to you knowing your body, you knowing like the risk, like talking with your provider about the risk versus benefit. Um, And technically, just before we move on, technically like abnormal cell activity could also technically be something like leaky gut because that is an abnormal cell activity. But again, the founder of muscle testing said that you use muscle testing with other diagnostic tests from your knowledge to clinical picture to all of that. So remember, muscle testing is just one form of testing that could enhance other forms of testing, um, but it's not the only one. And so it can guide you into certain areas when need be. Yeah, I... I think that it is important to look at the whole picture no matter what and just yeah. go with where you feel most comfortable. I I think people don't trust their gut as much anymore. Mm-hmm. And if you have this feeling that you need to get further testing, then 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 get that testing. Yeah. Um I think that you know just the rate of cancer is, 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 it's massively increased. Of course, the vaccine is a factor. Um, but there are, even before that we were seeing increasing, increasing cancer rates in young people. Uh, here's one statistic, almost 35% of patients with colon or rectal cancer are diagnosed under the age of 40. So that's crazy. And it's where that's why they keep decreasing the age of, uh, recommendations. I think that thermography, we talked about this before we came on. What yeah. about using thermography? Um, because it detects the heat signature um yeah. as a way of, of ruling it out. And there was one study that did find it was effective. Yeah, um, and it's it's way less invasive. Yeah. Um, and so then if they find a heat signal coming from the digestive tract, uh, then okay, maybe that warrants getting a little more invasive test to see really what we're dealing with. Uh but our point is that it, at least my point is that it's, it's too often just you jump right into the invasive testing when there's a lot of other things that we just, people aren't aware of that can be less invasive and um, could maybe screen you for more testing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, and the hemocult is another one that's less invasive. It looks at like a stool sample, stool card and test for blood. I don't, I didn't ever really think that that was very helpful. I, I don't know. Somebody else might have another opinion about that. I think the thermography is a really good option. I think knowing your body, I think looking at root causes. And honestly, we look at some of the root causes of cancer in general. Mm-hmm. And we both recommend and and see like where regular parasite cleansing, okay. um, not all the time, not every month, but it being on your radar. Yeah. Uh, as like, you know, maybe once a year, maybe twice a year, this needs to be addressed. Um, it can be a very helpful thing to prevent cancer because you got to think about why is the body creating a tumor? Why, what is the body protecting it? Why is the body doing this? It's trying to address it. It's trying yeah. to, to, to enclose it and to address it. Yeah. And your, so your body doesn't make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, your, your um, body was is designed to thrive, and if there's an issue, it's your body trying to self-regulate. And we live in such a toxic world that it's getting harder and harder for our bodies to do that. Yeah, and so that goes into some of what we wanted to d- discuss with, like, okay, 
But these things are, that we're talking about, they're screening tools. They are not cancer prevention. No. They are screening tools for early detection. If you want to prevent cancer, you got to go after the day-to-day things. And if you're gung-ho on every mammogram and every colonoscopy and every pap, but you're not doing these things, you're not actually doing anything to prevent cancer. That's and correct. so- it, it, you really have to address the day-to-day things. And what, what do those things look like? So uh, we just, we talked about parasites. I mean, there's so many books about cancer where three fourths of it is all about getting parasites out of you yeah. because your body will tumor to stop the spread. Uh, and then think about it. The second thing that I always think I go to pesticides, yeah. I go to glyphosate, I go to, you know, what is that? It's an antimicrobial. It is an, it's a water soluble antibiotic that is used on our crops. And what is bacterial in origin are mitochondria. What is cancer? It's a mitochondrial disease. And so we have sprayed our country full of pesticides because the residue gets in all our water sources. It gets all over the place, which is why Lauren and I preach, you got to get water filters. You got to do these day-to-day things because it does go a long way. And so I would, whenever there's cancer, I always think parasites, pesticides, EMF. Those are probably my top three with mental stress. Yeah, I was, but okay, yeah, uh, the emotional and mental stress. Man, it is. It's hard to do what we do and like know all the risks to everything and to talk about it to people and to know that I am possibly contributing to somebody else's mental stress and them worried about this thing in the grocery aisle and this thing at the store. But you do need to know about clean products and clean foods at the same time as keeping perspective. Um, Like it is, if it is stressing you out, take a break. It is not worth that stress. Go outside, sit in the sunshine and, and, and journal or write some things down or pray or whatever you at the end of the day, you've got to be able to have a a, a not stressed day to day rhythm if you want to prevent cancer in yourself and in your family because your stress affects your children too. Yeah. Um, and they and your trauma. I mean, and my trauma and my stress affects my children. I'm not just saying you, but like it is something that we do have to be mindful of day to day. And like, I, I take more breaks now on from Instagram and from social media than I ever have, because it's, it affects my, it affects me and the way I parent if I don't. And so that is something that we all have to be mindful of. If I have to do that, I'm sure you do too. Cause we all, we all have stress from being on our phones, especially the blue light, but the EMFs, but also the, uh, the social media just in general just creates this amount of this massive amount of stress. Yeah. I, I have nothing else to add to that. That was exactly uh truth with Stan's time. She was just so, speaking some truth. Yeah. Stop putting your phone in your pocket. <laughs> Do what yeah. you can to uh use it on speakerphone. Decrease EMFs. Don't yeah. stress about it. <laughs> yeah. Try not to put like I said, try not to put it up to your head. Use the but, speakerphone. But be aware of it. And then, you know, regular parasite and, and addressing just gut dysbiosis. Don't ignore stuff. Um, allergies, eczema and all these things. That's not normal. It's common. It's yeah. common, but it's not normal. And that's a sign of, of further dysfunction. And so don't let something that is common be like, Oh, that's not a big deal. It's not a big deal by itself. But if you look at it in the context of everything else, 
it yep. can lead to further disease later. And we want better for ourselves and we want better for our children. Yeah, literally every episode that we've done, all of that we're talking about, because if we don't talk about that, we're not aware of that, then you're not aware of something that causes dysfunction in your body. And cancer is a massive dysfunction. And so it's hard for us to, at least for me, to really start talking about all these causes of cancer, because, you know, we just, I just named the top four that I see yeah. uh, from a clinical standpoint, but every episode that we've ever done in this podcast, besides our last one, talking about socializing medicine, all <laughs> of them, uh, we talk them for a purpose and it is for this purpose, exactly why we've started to really do this podcast. And, um, so yeah, if you haven't listened to all our other, you know, it, it's time for everyone to just binge our podcast. If, you're, if this is your first episode, binge it. Trust me, there's a lot of good information in there and um, it needs to be heard. But don't, if it's going to stress you out, go slow. Like, yeah, just you go, go at your out. pace. Go, go at your pace. Go yeah. at your pace. Know that uh, there's always something that can be done and a little bit goes a long way. And if something is overwhelming you to the point where it's mentally stressing you out, it's not worth doing until you're ready to take that journey. Exactly. All right. I think we did a really good job. Yeah, that was really good. Um, Lauren, I think you should probably still read your favorite two sentences. Oh yeah. Please don't take this as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare provider before changing anything because we are not looking at your cases. We don't know. We don't know what's going on with you and with your family. And with, so it could change. I'm not saying it's going to change to our recommendation, but I'm saying that every situation is different and know your body, trust your body, trust your gut and go with what you think is best. I love it. All right. Well, hope you guys enjoyed this episode and we'll see y'all in the next one.